0: Well, the Astros are in the playoffs again, Um, yay, this is really exciting, Um, even more exciting they've been winning, yay, Um, this is, yeah, it's an important thing um, for me, they won on Friday, 7-2, my father was at that game, I was not at that game, Um, but that's okay, I don't have to be at all the games, Um, um, and then they won again last night, it didn't look like they were, and it was... Um, yeah, it, it turned out. It was great. I remember last year, those of you who were with us last year, I talked about them a few times. Um, maybe too often, but that's okay. <laughs> and, um, they, I remember laying in bed so anxious, expecting them to fall apart and collapse because so, my entire life had been. It's like, okay, the Astros get to the playoffs, have a good team, and then they just get a lot of um, goose eggs, as the old baseball term, for a zero in an inning. And so they do a lot, and then they kept on not losing. It was just like, what is going on? This is weird. Um, I remember laying in bed, watching my phone, and like turning it off when the Dodgers would come up to play (laughs) (laughs) that, and then turning it back on, and like, oh my gosh, wait, we didn't blow it, we haven't blown it yet, and they won, and it was exciting, and then I had to like reassess my entire life, like what does it mean if the Astros, I don't know, I've never lived in this, the Astros won a World Series, ah, everything comes into question. I grew up listening to them with my father, he grew up going to games and um, we still keep score the old fashioned way, even though it's like one of the most anachronistic things. It's, um, it's, in, it's enjoyable to have that, that discipline and that practice. If you, if you don't know what that is, I'd love to teach you how to keep score. Um, to a base, even though there is a scoreboard on every baseball team, it's still good to just, you know, sometimes they're wrong and there's a mistake usually once a game and I catch it. And it's pretty good. Um, but I'm not a part of the team. My father's not a part of the team. Those of you who like any team, those are, you know. there's a lot of Longhorn fans in this church. They won yesterday, amazingly. Um, none of you are a part of the team. Uh, when the Astros won last year, I did not get a ring. I don't have my, a World Series ring on my finger. Even though the Astros, I know, it would have been nice. Uh, they gave out more rings than any team in the history of baseball. They gave out almost 1,200 rings to almost most of the members of the entire organization through the minor leagues, to anybody who's tangentially related. They wanted to celebrate like that, but I didn't get a ring! I mean, come on. Um, I wasn't a part of that, and yet I feel a connection to them. And this connection is intentional. The entire business model of professional sports and collegiate sports is to maintain and create more fans. Fans, which is a nice little euphemism and shortening of fanatics. (laughs) That's really what it comes from. And so they want to make fans. They don't talk about fanatics. They talk about fans. Oh, we want you to be a fan of this. So you want me to be crazy? Well, yes. But But we don't don't talk like that. We just say you're a fan. They want more fans. In the language of the church, these, these teams want to catechize people into not thinking rationally about this subject. Because that's what a fanatic is. A fanatic is someone who doesn't really think rationally when this subject comes up. And you know the irrationality the is this belief that I'm a part of something that I'm not actually a part of. And that the way I become more a part of it is if I buy more gear, if I go to more games, if I talk about it more, if I become advertisers for it. And the more I do that, the more I'm a part of this thing that I'm actually really not a part of that. And I can say this in a disinterested mode, and still tomorrow, when first pitch at like 12.37, I will be there, not at the game, not in Cleveland, thankfully, I don't want to be in Cleveland, but I will be, <laughs> I will be paying attention. And so there is this, this disconnect there about, you know, this. I'm not really a part of it, this thing, but I want to be a part of it. And I see that it's trying to suck away my money and my time, and yet I'm like, you know what, it's still kind of fun and good memory. <laughs> With what are the things that we really are a part of? What are the things that connect us? We're continuing today in our series on the sacred story, on what our our sacred story is, and all the things that flow in our life. Two weeks ago, we began by discussing um, the two passages from Luke, the, the first Luke 18, the story of the rich young ruler, the man who comes up to Jesus and says, you know, how, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, you should not kill anybody, don't steal, don't do the bad stuff. And he says, well, I, I do all that. I mean, I, I don't do all that. And, and then Jesus says, well, then you should um, sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. The poor. And the man said, or the scripture says, and the rich young ruler turned away sad because they had many possessions. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have the story of Zacchaeus, right by it, the story of Zacchaeus, the horrible sinner, not just the short guy, but the thief and the crook and the guy, and the weasel, who was taking away everybody's money and, um, and then climbed up on that sycamore tree because for some reason he wanted to see Jesus. And so he got up on the tree and then for an amazing reason, Jesus looked at him and said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house today. And then Zacchaeus, you know, when Jesus looked at him, he responded. He repented of his sin. He realized the errors of his way. And he said he made a pledge. He made a pledge of restitution for those he had cheated. And then he made a a pledge of purpose out of the gratefulness for what God had done in his life. Last week, we spoke about our own sacred stories, about our own individual stories, how my sacred story is different from your sacred story and how we must discern that as ourselves and how easy it is to fall into the temptation of hypocrisy, the temptation of wearing a mask, of acting as if people that we are not, of pretending to be the people we think others want us to be, but how the word of God cuts through those masks and frees us from captivity to hypocrisy. Today we are talking about our sacred story About the collective body What is amazing about Christianity Is that we are all in the body of of Christ This is an overarching metaphor of the church But it is also a concrete thing We are literally connected This is one of the ways in which we believe in the Trinity That that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit That God is not just this big thing That is really far away That is looking down on us and controlling us And making us feel bad about things we do That is not the God we believe in the God we believe in is the creator of everything but also is present here. Is present here in the Holy Spirit uniting us, drawing us together. Drawing us together and further making us concrete as the body of Christ in this place in participation of who God is. And we are not all the same. Paul talks about how, you know, as the body of Christ, some are hands and some are feet. And a hand is not a foot. And if we were all hands, we would not be getting anywhere very fast. And if we were all feet, we could not be really doing much. It should be pretty awkward in that kind of way. We're also eyes and ears and hearts and brains and all of these pieces working together for the purpose of God in this place. And membership in the church is not about fanaticism. It is not about making a fan of people. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are not peddlers of the word, but people of sincerity. And as Jesus says in our gospel, I thank you God because you have hidden things from the wise and revealed them to infants. The amazing revelation of Jesus Christ is not just for the wise or the rich or the exceptional or the people on TV. It is for the child. It is for all of us. To be a part of the church is not to be the holiest person you've ever met. It is not to be a super athlete, of God, but to be a humble child of God. The collective body of Christ is not just this immaterial, ethereal thing, though. It is a concrete reality. It is here and now. And in our reality, it is Berkeley United Methodist Church. So I want to share a little bit about some of that history of this church. Ray Hudson put this history together a few years ago, but I'm sharing it with all of you. There's some, a few uh, a slideshow, or scrapbooks in the narthex that some of these pictures come from. And so this was from the first uh, stewardship campaign, the first capital campaign of the church. Opened the door in 74. <laughs> but we have a little back history before that. In 1958, the Austin District Board of Missions purchased five acres of land in South Austin. I bet you will never imagine how much they purchased it for $7,200. <laughs> yes, so all of this land was purchased for $7,200. Um, yeah it 's not it 's not worth that now, if you can imagine um, Arthur Cunningham was a member of the the Board of missions and also a member of the school board in charge with locating possible sites for new schools and so that 's why it was, they knew there was an elementary school coming here, so he purchased. Uh, the land for the church. And so that's why all over Austin, so many church plants are located very close to schools because literally the exact same person picking sites for schools was picking sites for churches. Um, it's a pretty, pretty good thing, when, pretty good game when you got it. But in 1971, the Austin District and the Southwest Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church prepared to launch a new church in South Austin. The Austin superintendent, Bill Harris, asked a retired pastor from Na- Nebraska, Sid McCaig, and his wife, Christine, who lived in the Cherry Creek subdivision, to contact homes in the neighborhood. In person and by telephone, they contacted over 2,000 people and wrote them all on note cards, compiling those results. That was quite a, quite a file, you can imagine. Um, the McCagues themselves continued to participate in the church for many years. You can go through some of the pictures. Um, in... Reverend Bernie Sandberg was appointed at the age of 30 as the first pastor of this church. The first service was held in the cafeteria of Cunningham Elementary School in March of 1972. And for the next two and a half years, the congregation worshipped there, while the main building took shape, as you can see on the overhead. The consecration service was held September 8, 1974. Thus fulfilling the goal, open the door in 74. (laughs) Aren't they school? Yeah. Pastors who have been appointed by the bishop to serve here. There's 16 total. Bernie Sandberg, David Stewart, Kim Kate, James Lee Carter, Walter Mattison, Roy Ricker, and then Associate May Fletcher, Patsy Herndon, Nancy Day as an associate, Judith Baskin as an associate, Dee Eagleston, Patsy Thomas as an associate, Cynthia Kepler, Jeannie Whitehurst, Jeannie Devine, and Wilson Pruitt. That would be me. (laughs) The story of Berkeley, though, is not the story of this land, nor is it the story of the clergy who are here, nor is it the story of some really good times in the 70s that all those scrapbooks (laughs) point out. The story of Berkeley is the story of the collective body of Christ. We have been called by God not because we are qualified or talented, So often we are called because we are weary and looking for some rest. We are looking for a home in this broken world or looking for shelter through the storms of life. And we stay because we have found that rest. As Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest here in Greek is the word enapausis, which is the root of our word pause, um, which I associate mostly with video games. I didn't realize it was a Greek word. (laughs) And a, a pause is great in a video game because you get to a section and you have no, no, th- no idea what to do and you just go, like, a pause, and you're like, okay, I can take a breath and get forward. I wish life was like that. <laughs> you got, got into a tough conversation with someone and you just were able to hit, re- hit pause and like, okay, I can kind of reassess. But last, it does not. Anapausis uh, is not just rest. It is, also means tranquility. It means, it means a secession from labor. It means refreshment. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you tranquility. I will give you refreshment. I will give you peace. The passage for today begins by differentiating the wise from the childlike. And I think this last section from the passage in Matthew also differentiates the wise from those who labor. Jesus isn't talking to the wise. The wise are the ones who have figured out a way out of the system, right? The wise are like Zacchaeus, who figure out a way to cheat the system, so they let all the other suckers do all the work, and they just skim a little off the top. But that's not who Jesus is talking to in this. Jesus is talking to all those who are working and tired and hurt and need a little rest. And Jesus is not telling them to stop working, but to stop working for the wrong reasons, to stop working for the wrong boss. As Bob Dylan says, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And then Jesus also says, Come to me all. Not come you, 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 not come individuals. Come to me all, the collective body. We're not called as individuals. It is our story, not my story. It is our story in this place where God has been present to so many people and where God has sent so many people from this place into ministry, into missions, into life in new places. Our rest in God is not the end of our story. We begin in resting together in the grace of Jesus Christ and then we move into the world to act as God's hands and feet. It is our story of God here, not mine, not yours. No individual owns it. As well, we are part of the worldwide communion of the United Methodist Church. We remember that especially this day, World Communion Sunday. We remember that all over the world, people, not even United Methodists, Christians, all over the world in surprising and amazing ways in all the country languages that can be imagined, are eating at this table, are sharing bread, are sharing the life of Jesus Christ with each other. So far beyond the confines of this $7,200 campus in 1958. Yet, still concretely, we are the body of Christ here. And our sacred story is not finished. It is not over. We are not completed. The future of the church is not present yet. And the future of the church goes beyond the status quo. It goes beyond the people sitting in this room and the people on our attendance rolls. There is a future beyond, even next year, in the called General Conference in the United Methodist Church and the future of the UMC. Our future is in the people in this community, the people out those doors, who are tired and weary and heavy laden and in need of rest. Our future is found in missions and ministry that have not yet been conceived. What this means is that that those of us who are here must stake a claim on the sacred story of this place. We wish to be a body that aligns our lives with the claims of this place and the call of God on our heart. We wish to be a people that does not demarcate levels of faithfulness, beyond which we shall not cross. And this this is the rich young ruler. He had a line that he was not going to cross of what God's blessings would be for him. I love you, God, but only this much. Or as Augustine said, forgive me, Lord, but not yet. (laughs) He said that, and he wasn't being facetious. It was in the confessions, but it's a good line, and I think it's pretty apropos for a lot of us a lot of the time. They were like, okay, God, I know this isn't good, but I'll get maybe tomorrow I'll do that. But we don't want to be that people that put a clamp on God's blessings for us and put a marker and think that, okay, I've got it figured out, God. I know what it's going to be. In order to be the location of God's mercies in the future, we must be faithful to God's call in the present. Mm -hmm. Remembering God's faithfulness that brought us here today. This is a a flower that was given to Myrna and Buzz this morning at the work corner. In order to be shared in worship. The work corner, our ministry at Berkeley that has been going on for almost 40 years. a um, A long time of faithfulness in missions, that goes beyond what many churches can even hope for, having that idea of being in the community and that gift offered back to us, that the point of going to the work corner is not, is not to feel good about ourselves and not as well just to, just to give tacos and go home, but, but to be a part of communities of need and offer something beyond the minimum in this world. And I think that's what Jesus offers here in this passage. Jesus doesn't offer the minimum. Life with God is never the minimum. It's never just this, okay, here is this. You know, here's some bread, here's some water. Go on, you're fine. That's not what God says. It says, come, you who are weary, and rest in me. Rest in me. In order to be the location of God's mercies in the future, we must be faithful to God's call in the present. And part of this means being a people of generosity, not the kind of people who respond—not just the kind of people who respond in times of need, which is great and it's wonderful to respond in times times of need—but the kind of people who pledge our resources because of what God has done for us, and because of our hope in what God is doing here. And not just here today, and not just here for fiscal year 2019 or 2020, but what God is doing here in the future to come. Our story is not over. Not next year, not in five years. And as Paul says in this letter to the Ephesians, the point is that with our eyes, with the eyes of our heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power for those who believe? This is an offering to us. That we may have that immeasurable greatness of the power of God that is offered to you. Has been offered in this place since 1974 and will continue to be offered in this place. And what we must do as those who are here today, we must look inside ourselves, we must look at each other, We we must talk to each other about are we aligning our story with our sacred story here? How do we fit? Are we being the hand? Are we being the foot? Are we fulfilling what God can have us do here? Are we seeking the minimum of God's grace in the life? Are we seeking the immeasurable greatness of power that God offers for us all?